This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, whose scientists played a substantial role in developing more than half the drugs approved by the FDA in the last five years. Dana-Farber Cancer Institute is changing lives everywhere. DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. There's a new movie out called Monica. Maybe you heard about it. Maybe you missed it. It was released last year. It wasn't a blockbuster, but it did get a record-setting standing ovation at the Venice Film Festival, and it's up for some awards. Monica stars my guest, Trace Lissette. She plays Monica. As the movie starts, she's on her own, in early middle age, doing sex work, just kind of getting by. And she gets a phone call. Her mom is sick, and she doesn't have much time left. Monica is estranged from her mom, and has been since she came out as trans. So Monica goes home to help her brother care for her mother. And when she gets there, her mom doesn't recognize her. Monica doesn't tell her mom who she is. She just cares for her. It could have been a big melodrama. Instead, it's the furthest thing from that. A quiet, intimate, beautiful movie about family love. The film got Lissette nominated for Best Lead Performance at the Independent Spirit Awards. Trace Lissette grew up in Dayton, Ohio. She found her first community in the few queer clubs that that area offered. She spent a good portion of her 20s as a sex worker living in New York City. She's been a professional actor for about a decade. You might have seen her on Law & Order or Transparent. And As you'll hear later on, she is also a pretty decent rapper. One quick note before we go on. As I mentioned, she worked as a sex worker, and we are going to talk about that work in some detail in this conversation. So if you or someone you're listening to this with is sensitive to that kind of thing, we figured we would let you know. So anyway, let's start with a clip from Monica. Monica's just arrived home, and her mom has mistaken her for a nurse or a home care worker. How long have you been standing there? Oh, I... Please. Knock or just... Announce yourself as the... Proper thing to do when you're a guest in someone else's house. Sorry. I just came to see if you needed anything before... You're all dressed up? Yeah, I figured I would just... Step out for a little bit. Well, that's good. You know, you don't need to stay around all the time. I can take care of myself. Trace Lissette, welcome to Bullseye. I'm so happy to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. This was your first time starring in a feature. Were you worried or did you feel like you were good to go or both? I knew I was good to go, but I was a little worried about the constraints of indie filmmaking and the money of it all. And um, yeah, (laughs) there's a lot of things outside of my instrument and my power that I was initially worried about. But I was, I was aware that like, 
a shot like this is just rare for an actor, especially a trans actor. So I was game for it. The part that felt like, as I was watching the film, that would feel like scary to me as an actor is that the film is so quiet and also so much of it is shot tight on you. Like there is so little that is about choreography and so much that is about your face. Yeah. I had to let go of any vanity or, well, I feel like insecurity is the root of vanity, which I don't know if everyone makes that correlation. But when you're trans, you've spent so many years of your life looking in the mirror and trying to figure out why you don't look like what you think you should look like or what you should have been born as. And um, I had a lot of time to sort through that stuff. So when it comes to acting, I was um, studying back in New York and I learned that I had to let go of all that really early on if I was going to focus on the truth and the heart of whatever story I was trying to tell or whatever character I was trying to flesh out. And so the tightness, I guess, was still difficult in a technical way because there were times when I was like, am I in frame? No, you don't want me in frame? Okay, cool. How do I reach the audience if I'm, you know, barely in frame? So that was the challenge, um, more so over just having the camera so close. Um, It was just like, how do I reach the audience with these limited resources, you know, limited camera time. And what I realized is that there was just zero room for anything false. And you mentioned choreography. There actually were certain scenes that were choreographed. Andrea is the most specific director I've ever worked with. And again, that was a challenge but one that I welcome. And, um, you know, there were times when he would say, okay, make sure you lean this way and then lean back in frame and then put the necklace on and then, like, lean back and take a breath and then just settle and let whatever comes out come out. And I'm like, oh, okay, did it was I not in frame on the last take? Like, what do you want? <laughs> he was very specific, but it was kind of cool to make art that way. There's a scene maybe a third of the way, 25% of the way into the movie, where you're at your mother's house putting on jewelry in front of a mirror. Yeah. Is as like intensely intimate as it gets <laughs> in a movie. Yeah. That was a hard scene. That was a very specific scene. You know, I was trying to emote but not do too much uh, because I knew he wanted that in other places. Um, I think as an actor, you try to make a roadmap for the character before you dive in and then you get to set and then you have to take in everyone else's notes and make everyone else happy too. And so it was just a combination of that and also having one eye in frame and hoping that the audience was going to feel what I was trying to give them. And I think they did. I think that trying on our parents' things is a powerful thing for anyone, like a relatable thing for Mm -hmm. anyone. Like, I think all the time, one of my kids used to go up 
into my office where my clothes were in my old house and put on my shoes and hat and she'd come down the stairs going, oosh, 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 ats, ats. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I think often for girls, makeup and jewelry is a big part of that. Mm -hmm. I mean, for everybody sometimes, but often for girls. And I would imagine that for a trans character and as a trans actor, that has, you know, double or triple weight. Yeah. I mean, a lot of things were going through my mind shooting that scene in particular. Um, I have my own memories of doing that with my mother's things as a young, you know, boy at the time, I guess. And, you know, I remember she walked in one time, she came home and I had... I had like her backless mule heels on in the living room <laughs> with my Fruit of the Loom briefs like, hiked up into my, I don't know what I was doing. I think I was rapping to little Kim or something. Um, <laughs> so there's that visual for you. Um, and she was just like, what is going on in here? You know, she's a first grade school teacher, single parent. And um I was just like, I don't know, just having fun, you know. Um, <laughs> thankfully, it, that didn't end too badly, but I know she had questions. Yeah. I think um, often it is an easy story to tell about trans people, a story of transformation. If the inflection point is someone's transition in some way, then it's just convenient for storytelling reasons. And so that ends up being the story in a lot mm-hmm. of trans stuff. This is a story about someone who is trans, has been trans. It's not about them changing. Yeah. Was that meaningful to you? Yeah, that was the hook for me when I got the script end of 2016. I was like, oh, she's a (laughs) full-grown, well-lived-in woman. I think it was written for a 50-something-year-old trans woman. And um, I thought, oh, she's lived a life and she's lived as trans for a very long time, meaning her transition, her physical transition happened a long time ago for her. And that was something we don't get to see very often because they do reach for the transition story because it's it's dramatic and it's like, I, I don't know, it's sensational and it's easy for a wide audience to find it fascinating because people are superficial and shallow. And, uh, and you know, self-actualization is the theme of a lot of things of all kinds. True. It, it's, it, like it's yeah. the, the biggest thing to my mind is it's easy. It's right there. It's yeah. just right in front of you. You don't have to stretch for it. Yeah. And I don't mean to make light of the physical transition if there is one. Um, I don't always think that there has to be one. But for me, there was, there was one. It was a very, very dramatic physical transition but yeah I really appreciated that this was not about that this was about a woman coming home to see what was left with her birth mother in her mom's last days see if there's anything there at all and maybe not maybe nothing but she was down to take the road trip and see we're going to go to a quick break when we return even more with Trace Lissette. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. 
Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History, from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, is now streaming on Hulu. This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Breast cancer cells multiply faster because of CDK4-6 proteins. But what if blocking those proteins and stopping runaway cell division was possible? Dana-Farber scientists laid the foundation for CDK4-6 inhibitors, new drugs that are increasing the survival rate for many advanced breast cancers. Dana-Farber's momentum of discovery keeps finding new ways to outmaneuver cancer. More at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Trace Lissette. Trace is an actor, a rapper, and a former drag performer. She has appeared in movies and TV shows like Hustlers, Transparent, and one of my personal favorites, Blunt Talk. She stars alongside Patricia Clarkson in Monica, a quiet and haunting drama about a trans woman caring for her sick, estranged mother. Lissette has just been nominated for Best Lead Performance at the upcoming Independent Spirit Awards. Let's get back into my conversation with the wonderful Trace Lissette. You have a producer credit on the film, and I know that you worked on the script. What did you have to say about it? Like, what changed in part through your contributions? Well, I gave page-by-page notes pretty early on. So there was different things that stayed and went. Uh, But I remember after we shot it, even, there was some sex work that got lost um, they had taken out the webcam scene altogether, and they had taken out another trick at the top of the movie uh, where I gave a guy a massage and a and they just kind of whittled it down to me answering the door and like, you know, I think a few seconds of massage. Um, and then the, the webcam scene was gone altogether. And that webcam scene is pretty intense because it's, yeah. uh, you know, in a spare bedroom that might have been your childhood bedroom in your mom's I house. Know. It's so layered, right? Like the innocence of that room, you know, is clearly gone now because uh, she has to do what she has to do to make a living. Probably not by choice. For most of us, it was not by choice. And then to have to go and run and nurture her mother with those same hands that she turns tricks with. I needed that in the film, and I fought for it. And Andrea, thankfully, was collaborative. And after we had that conversation, it was a tough conversation, but I said, look, these people have to know what some of her life is like now. It's not all roses. And they also need to know her duality, you know, that she can still be nurturing because we never see sex workers in that way not very often anyway in a maternal nurturing way like 
So I was like, I, I really need you to at least show this to people. He did. He showed it to people. And he was like, okay, we're going to show it to people. And everyone was like, put that back in. <laughs> so they did. But as far as like back to your original question about the notes, um, uh, yeah, there was just page by page notes. Um, different things like dead naming came up. And we 86 that and decided to just call her Monica. You know, there's no need for her old name. But, you know, I did what I could. Um, I was kind of like one of two trans people on set. And, yeah, I think it's important for trans people to have some say-so beyond just being the actor. And, you know, maybe that is the same person. Maybe it's another person. Maybe it's several people. I think that is the direction we need to move towards in storytelling. Did you think about the relationships between these really sort of first-person intimacies, these like really direct human things, and the enactments that are necessary for sex work, the sort of self-awareness that's necessary for expressing your gender in public? Because that feels like a really significant part of this movie, like dying bodies and like doing makeup. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, I did think about it, uh, but it wasn't that foreign from my own life in some ways. I mean, Monica and her shell, how she walked, talked, dressed, what her friend group probably looked like. The amount of money she grew up with was all different from me. But the sex work part of it was not foreign to me, unfortunately. <laughs> the survival piece was not foreign to me. The familial journey with acceptance was not foreign to me. Um, but, you know, I had to kind of find the bridge because nothing was exact. I mean... You know, I didn't lose 20 years with my family. Thank God my mother is an amazing and adaptive person. And we figured it out, right? And I know she loves me. But there were things that I had to kind of like, it's like a Tetris game in my head of trying to figure out where the parallels are and how do I convey that. And yeah, so <laughs> makeup and dead bodies, that sounds like a, a song or something. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's what's so beautiful about the film. Um, yeah. Makeup and dying bodies. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I feel like Lil' Kim could make a record called that, right? Abs she absolutely could. I'm waiting for her big comeback. I'm ready for it. We've tried to, I've, I can't tell you how many times I've tried to get Lil' Kim to come on Bullseye. Oh Lil' Kim, if you're God. listening, go on Bullseye. NPR is ready for you. Oh, wow. Let's that would go. Be major. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Trace Lissette. She's an actor, rapper, and former drag performer. One of her favorite tracks to perform back in her drag days was How Many Licks by Lil' Kim. I'll let Trace tell you all about it. That was one of the drag songs I did when I was working in the clubs as a teenage drag queen. Really? <laughs> yeah. How many licks? That song jams. <laughs> yeah. That goes. <laughs> yes. Definitely helped me pay my rent. What was the act? Oh, I mean, I uh, it was back when the <laughs> it was just a lip sync. You know, there was a club called Wall Street in 
Columbus. And um, I used to work in 1470 West, which is a club in Dayton, Ohio. And I used to do how many licks. And uh, it was the era of the kind of like flip out Mary J. Blige wig. It was like a throwback to 70s hair that had a resurgence in the early 2000s. And I would make my own wigs. They were called like a quick weave. And I was in hair school at the time. And I would go buy the tracks and like glue them to a stocking cap and just like make whatever colors I wanted and throw them on. And my best friend from high school, Charles, he would be my background dancer. And I did everything from little Kim to Janet to Destiny Child. The list goes on. (laughs) It must have been a tight scene in Dayton, Ohio. It was. I mean, the clubs, and this is pre-cell phones even, yeah, all we had was the clubs. I mean, historically, nightclubs have been like our church for LGBTQ plus folks. And it was um, where I went to find myself, find friends, find love, find entertainment, find my womanhood. I found so many things in the nightclubs of Dayton, Ohio, Columbus, New York City. Um, I think drag was like an extension of theater for me. I um, I guess I discovered entertainment young when I was like five years old at my elementary school play. We did a play called Melvin the Magnificent and for whatever reason the music teacher thought I should be Melvin and so... That was my first leading role, you know. And then you grow up and you get bullied heavily and you lose something. You lose that spark. And then I saw it flicker back in certain ways, like choreographing the high school halftime dance with the cheerleaders at the basketball game, you know. And it was a mashup of, like, Maria Maria by Santana and Thong Song and, like, The Percolator. And I choreographed the whole thing and I, got a standing I don't open. think you could have put a harder <laughs> point on the time period. And I got a standing ovation. Like, you know, the entire gymnasium, like, stood up and went crazy. And decades later, I'm getting standing ovations in Venice, which is really cool. But it all stemmed from, like, just an, a very unconventional route with theater, whether it was Melvin the Magnificent or Thong Song or the the drag clubs, you know, as a teenage drag queen. I mean, I didn't go to college. I did not go to prestigious, you know, Yale or Tisch. But I did get a real-life kind of experience in ways that you cannot pay for. You mentioned sort of finding your gender identity in the drag world. Mm Mm-hmm. How did you find it? I mean, the drag world is such a mixed bag of gender identities and gender expressions, right? So how did it help you figure out who you are? Well, in Dayton, Ohio, in the mid-late 90s, I had a fake ID, and I was dating someone who worked at this particular club called 1470 West. And i it's etched in my brain the night that he introduced me to a woman by the name of Jarye Rashad, who is a local Dayton legend, um, drag entertainer, but also trans woman who works in the context of drag. And 
she was stunning. I mean, she had this Tony Braxton aesthetic and um she was so elegant and kind and just embraced me and so it was women like her that I met early on that I don't know, planted a seed in me. Um I don't think she meant to. She was just being herself and just effervescent and beautiful and so entertaining and I knew that there was something in me that identified with her. And so I started to entertain. I started to do whatever I could to just get in and, you know, throw on a wig and do a number. I feel like if I had your co-star in this movie, Patricia Clarkson, in here, Mm -hmm. I probably wouldn't have to ask her about anything that's this exhausting to talk about. Yeah, yeah, probably not. I'm grateful to you for talking with me about it, but I'm also mindful of that, that like, look, we're out here, it's award season. Hopefully you get nominated for some awards, and I bet a lot of the awards that you get nominated for, part of the story will be first trans woman gets nominated for this award, right? And that is a lot of crap to carry around from radio studio to radio studio. (laughs) Yeah, the whole first of it all, I mean, it's a double-edged sword. Obviously, it can be an honor, and obviously we want to break down those doors, but then it's also, like, heavy. You know, it's heavy. When we got the standing ovation in Venice, I think it was it was history being made as the first time a trans woman had ever led a film at that, the oldest film festival in the world. And you would think that that would make... It did make some headlines, but then when we got the standing ovation, I mean, they it was 11 and a half minutes, which was the longest of the festival that year so far. And the next day they wrote about Spitgate with Harry Styles and Chris Pine instead of writing about us. And, you know, that made it harder for us to get the distribution. It's just seeing the awards game of it all now also is just like such a trip because... It's so money-driven and campaign-driven. It's like politics. And I guess I was a little naive. I mean, I thought I knew, but I didn't know. I didn't know how bad it was. But um, the press game of it all, like recently, we tried so hard to get in on, like, the round tables with the Hollywood Reporter and, you know, we just, they wouldn't make space. And so it blows my mind, and I'm probably going to take heat for this, for even talking about it, but so many people claim to be an ally, and then they don't really know what that means to actually make space for a marginalized person, specifically trans people, in this specific time in history. We don't get opportunities like this. And It's not like the work isn't good and this has been a handout. Like, you know, making room for trans excellence should be something that we all want to do, just like we would with any other minority. And the press opportunities, like pitching all these different late night shows and being told no, pitching the roundtables and being told no, pitching cover stories, whatever, and being denied a lot of things all leads into the awards conversation because then the voters think there's only five or 10, you know, 
people to choose from or vote for. And those are the screeners at the top of their at the top exactly. top of the pile on their DVD player. Exactly. The ones that have made the round tables and have the most money and whatever and whatever. And it's not all performance based and it's not always based in what is timely on a in a historic way, like for whatever group or whatever yeah, whatever group is really just starved for a seat at the table. And um, that's been hard for me. That's been harder for me than anything else in this whole process. Harder for me than the art we actually made. It's been seeing how the business side of Hollywood operates and the press game and the money game. It's been really challenging. So I've been giving it all I have and we have like two more weeks left before Academy voting starts or something. I don't know. I'm just like... Then you I'm can running just on take fumes. A, take a break from self-revelation. <laughs> yeah. We'll finish up with Trace Lissette after a quick break. When we return, you might have heard me mention that Trace is also a rapper, and I am pleased to report the following news. She has charm. She has verve. She has bars. We're going to hear them. Stay tuned. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how a new study aims to impact an underrepresented community. My greatest hope for the Voices of Black Women study is that it will help us understand and identify culturally tailored ways to change and really eliminate the unacceptable disparities for future generations of Black women as it relates to cancer. To learn more, go to voices.cancer.org. The Eurovision Song Contest. Hundreds of millions of people watch it every year. It played a part in a democratic revolution in Portugal. It introduced the world to Riverdance, and it launched Celine Dion's career. But you might have never watched it. It's got so much history and so many storylines that it can feel overwhelming to get into. Mm-hmm. It's like a real housewife season, but everyone's a better singer. Well, sometimes. But that's where we come in. I'm Dimitri Pompey. I'm Oscar Montoya. And I'm Jeremy Bent, and we're the hosts of Eurovangelists. If you're new to Eurovision, we'll tell you everything you need to know to start enjoying the world's most important important song competition. And if you're already a fan, we'll dive deep on its wildest moments, like when Ireland sent a turkey puppet to sing for them. You're Evangelist. New episodes every Thursday. On MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is actor Trace Lissette. She's the star of the new movie, Monica. So you rap a little bit. And oh my goodness, <laughs> I do. And uh, you're a pretty good rapper too. Oh, thank you. Uh, and I'm a real snob about that. Oh, okay. I, I wanted to play a little bit of a song that you're featured on that's called Taser in My Telfar Bag. <laughs> um, okay. Because it's such a fun track and it's, you know, it's about something. So let's take a listen. Okay. Bothered how I rep and yeah, the trade sniffing for it. He got me a little wet, but if he try it with me, I'ma have to taste him in his neck. Hating is this shit on the block when I walk. I don't even want them in they could pile time when I walk. Looking for saying they press while they talking. What they really need to do is take notes as I walk. And a log girl in a digital world. So if you talk that ish, we might take a twirl. Oh my goodness. That song, that's probably my least favorite song of all my songs. But I do, I do love the narrative of like walking down the street and like 
just having to put on that character because it is a character. Right, trade is like so. You rapping that song, the, the trade sniffing for it. He got me a little wet, but mm-hmm. if you try it with me, I might have to tase him in the neck. Yeah, and trade is like it's a little broader maybe than John, but that's like the core of it. <laughs> it's similar. Uh, usually, there's no money exchanged. Um, I'd be like, yeah, a trade could turn into a John or a trick, but. Trade is like the boy on a corner. Like, you know, you put your, you know, you put your armor on when you leave the house. Like, this is kind of like if you're a New York girl and you're walking to the bodega to get a bun and cheese or whatever, like your <laughs> your groceries, a uh, snack, whatever. And, you know, the trade is on the corner. He's sniffing for it and he's looking at you or catcalling you or looking you up and down. Or you can tell there's some sexual energy going on and. Um, maybe he doesn't want to like holler at you out in public, um, cause that wouldn't be socially acceptable if, if it's known that you're trans on the block that you live on. It's, it's all of that energy. It's, you're the forbidden fruit and you have to be stern when you walk down the street and... But care. you have to be cute too. Like, you that's have to like... be, well, yeah, you want to be cute so you can feel good about yourself yeah. and... That's what that verse was about when they asked me to come and do 16 bars or whatever that was. You know, I was like, well, I'm going to tell what it's like when I walk down the street with the taser in my bag, which I still do. (laughs) When I go to the gym to shoot hoops, I have a taser in my backpack Uh, because you just never know. Um, I think every woman should. That's That's not just for trans women. But of course, it gets heightened sometimes as a trans woman. Because sometimes I think people think of us as like trying to trick people and we're just existing. Like I'm literally just going to the store or to shoot hoops. And yeah, that's what that's about. There's a lyric on one of your own songs that we 100% will have to run past standards and practices at National Public Radio. So... (laughs) It I is, love that. I couldn't leave it unremarked upon. It is Mecca Lecca High, Mecca High. <laughs> yes. <laughs> which forever respect to John Paragon, the deeply legendary Jombie from Pee Wee's Playhouse. Yes, I had to immortalize Pee Wee. <laughs> yes. I found that very touching. Yes. You know where that came from? Missy Elliott. I was a huge Missy Elliott fan. I like that that was your go-to bit of nonsense phrase. Like, when you were ready for your Missy Elliott, just make some noises, turn. Yeah. Well, it was important for me to, um, being a a white woman in hip-hop and a white trans woman in hip-hop, I mean, there's no precedent. So it's like... I'm going to have to be my own thing. I'm going to have to maybe disarm people with some humor a little bit, not take myself too, too seriously. I mean, I am a pretty serious hip hop head, but like people aren't going to understand that right out the gate. And I'm also just kind of getting my feet wet. And that was my first song, actually, SMB, Self Made, which means so many things for me. But, uh,. <laughs> I'm really proud of that song. Um, I'm sure my sound, if I continue to do music, which I hope I do, I'm sure my sound will keep evolving. And I don't know where I'll land, but I've been wanting to do like a proper EP. 
you show up pretty good on that record. It's it, thank you. It is distinctly not an embarrassment. Like thank you, I appreciate that. When it comes to people putting out their first record in their late thirties, <laughs> yeah. is a very impressive performance. Thank you so much. Gosh, okay, that's giving me motivation to maybe get back in the studio. Well, I sure am grateful for your time, Trace. It was really nice to get to talk to you, and congratulations on this really beautiful movie. Thank you so much. You know, it's a labor of love. And speaking of great beauty, maybe we should go out on SMB. Oh, okay. <laughs> came up in here hungry, thinking mother gon' feed ya. But if you came with empty hands, then I'ma say see ya. Mecca, lecca, high, mecca, honey. Hey, I hustle too hard for some grimy. Hey, Joe, why you waste my time thinking it's a slow go? Walk around and ghost on your baby, it's a no-go. Trace Lissette. As we mentioned, she is up for Best Lead Performance at this year's Independent Spirit Awards. We'll find out if she won February 25th. You can watch her in Monica, which is available to rent everywhere and to stream on AMC+. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. I'm still working from a little bedroom in the front of my house, but I'm moving to a shed in out behind my house. And uh, my friend Stefan was nice enough to let me come over to his house and check out projector screens. Stefan knows everything about projector screens. Pretty soon I'm going to be watching screener movies on a real screen. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Welcome to our new Maximum Fun production fellow, Daniel Huesias, who just joined us this week. We get booking help from Merritt Davis. Our interstitial music is by our pal Dan Wally, a.k.a. DJW. Our theme music is called Huddle Formation. It was written and recorded by the Go Team. Thanks to the Go Team. Thanks to their record label, Memphis Industries. Bullseye is on Instagram at Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. We are also on Twitter and YouTube and Facebook. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, historians, authors, athletes, and more about why people do the things they do. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. This is my voice. I can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on Black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.